We take a look at the adventures of Wonder Woman when she lost her powers in Wonder Woman, celebrating the 60s omnibus. Then we go to the 1980s, where the Avengers are assembling, but this time on the West Coast. In West Coast Avengers, assemble straight ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. The period in which Wonder Woman was depowered is a controversial topic in comic books. I'd read often how Gloria Steinem saved the character. The feminist writer and publisher of Miss Magazine had been a fan of Wonder Woman as a child, and Wonder Woman appeared on the cover with the uh, heading Wonder Woman for President. And Miss also reprinted some Wonder Woman stories from the Golden Age to stimulate interest in that version of the character. Other writers have said that DC's decision to remove Wonder Woman's powers debilitated her. This year, DC published a giant 700-page omnibus of the entire run of the new Wonder Woman. And my local library purchased it at yours truly suggestion. So I was able to sit down and read all the stories for myself. The book includes an introduction by Kelly DeConnick, best known for her run on Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Carol Danvers, which redefined the character and in many ways set up the Captain Marvel movie. She admitted it was a challenge writing this introduction as she didn't know either uh, Denny O'Neill or Mike Sikowski, the writer-slash-penciler team that originated the depowering of Wonder Woman. And all she could do was speculate on their motives. I don't know why that's the case with Denny O'Neill, who is still alive, and from what I read, active, it seemed like she'd be able to call him. However, that may just not be the case. At any rate, uh, she gathered from interviews that they didn't view what they were doing in depowering her as anti-feminist, but actually as a positive for feminism and for women. And she offered a pretty convincing theory as to how they could have thought that, that uh, Wonder Woman had all of these very mystical, uh, magical powers. By uh, taking those powers away uh, and having her... Uh, become a martial arts-powered superhero, they made her more relatable. A bit of an everywoman is what they were thinking. DeConnick sees a problem with that because at the end of the day, uh, the whole world of superheroes doesn't really have a bunch of room for uh, average ordinary people. If you're a superhero, by definition, you're not that. 
And essentially what O'Neill and Sikowski did is they eliminated all of her magical powers and then gave her equally over-the-top martial arts skills. It's not a bad theory, and I think it does play into the uh, way the book actually uh, played out. Uh, another thing that Connick di- uh, did say is that she really liked the art and also uh, the way that fashion was used in the book and wished that there were modern-day books that had more of uh, the fashion in play. Now, as for the book itself, it collects issues 178 to 196 and 199 to 204 of Wonder Woman. Issues 197 and 198 were reprints. And uh, also guest appearances in Batman's Brave and the Bold, in World's Finest, Adventures Comics, and uh, Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. Now, when looking at the Wonder Woman issues, um, it's important to remember that Wonder Woman was actually a bi-monthly comic at the time. So, uh, the time between issue 178 to 204, you're not looking at 27 months, you're looking at 54 months. And uh, about 52 of those uh, where she was uh, depowered. So, you're looking at a story arc that went on for four and a half years, uh, probably uh, about three times as long as the Superior Spider-Man arc. So this was a status quo in the DC Universe for quite some time. Issue 178 is in many ways a prequel of what was to come. Steve Trevor is charged with murder. Not only can't Wonder Woman help get him out of the situation, but actually has to provide testimony that goes against him, which Steve quite unfairly blames her for. Uh, So she decides that she has to use her skills as Diana Prince to investigate it. But uh, the straight-laced Diana Prince, who works for Army Intelligence, isn't going to get a lot of information from all of the hippie types who will be key in providing evidence. So she develops an entirely uh, different wardrobe to go undercover as Diana Prince and get the information that she needs and clears Steve Trevor. And so Steve is free and his problems are over and he is out of jeopardy completely until the first page of the next issue where uh, his boss in Army Intelligence assigns him to go undercover uh, in order to infiltrate a criminal gang uh, that's uh, smuggling some weapons. Now, needing Steve to be undercover, it seems to me that the uh, government might be smart enough not to choose the guy to go undercover whose uh, girlfriend is Wonder Woman, because this quickly gets uh, loused up by her efforts to save Steve and prove him innocent. And uh, Steve ends up getting uh, into the hospital, and in the middle of this, uh, Diana learns that the Amazons have to leave our dimension and return to another dimension. But she decides that Steve needs her, and stays behind and renounces her Amazon powers. However, she runs into Ai Ching, a blind Chinese man who also is a skilled martial artist. 
And I Ching trains her in the martial arts in great detail, using the most powerful teaching tool in the DC universe, and that is the training montage. Uh, just draws the all of these uh, pictures of showing uh, Diana training, and then quickly she is a master of the martial arts. Now I should just go ahead and take some time to talk about I Ching as a character, since he features throughout the rest of this run. In fact, in a whole bunch of comics, I Ching is actually given uh, a name billing. In fact, the top billing. Uh, you'll see I Ching and the new Wonder Woman, or the incredible I Ching and the new Wonder Woman. Though eventually they did decide to give uh, Diana the main and only billing in her own comic that she'd had since the 1940s. I Ching is wise and caring. He's a little bit hackneyed and falls back on sort of pseudo-Chinese uh, proverbs, but he is about as real a character as you would find in a DC comic in the late 60s and early 1970s. But that doesn't mean that there's a whole lot of depth to him. We do learn that he has a daughter who has uh, turned to evil because of something that she says he did. Though I never feel like we actually get a good explanation of what went on with that. The attempts to give him depth are kind of half-hearted, so he's really just a reliable supporting character throughout this run, but not a whole lot else. At any rate, I Ching, Diana, and a private eye go and battle Dr. Cyber, the dangerous uh, supervillain who turns out to be a supervillainess who Steve had been sent to intercept. In the course of this adventure, Steve dies, although being the comics, he would get better, although not in this book. Then she uh, battles some miscellaneous weird 60s stuff, including some uh, strange uh, and uh, criminal hippies, and then Morgana, the witch. She returns to Paradise Island for a visit to their dimension and finds that they are under siege in an attack by Ares. She is able to have an adventure using her fighting skills and leadership, even without her powers, to uh, lead the Amazons and help out her mother. Then we have an issue of Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, where Wonder Woman meets up with uh, Superman, and Lois is getting jealous and afraid that uh, Superman will marry Diana Prince, which is bringing up a host of inadequacies and insecurities, but that tended to be the way that Silver Age Lois Lane was written. And we get a hilarious attempt to redesign a Superman's costume, because uh, as part of her new mod thing, not only is uh, Wonder Woman a martial arts master, she also runs her own clothing boutique. And she puts a brown, long-haired uh, wig on Superman, uh, leaving it on even after he said the wig was not his bag, and then adds in uh, some stuff to complete the ensemble. 
And you get this line. Doesn't that beautiful soul shirt and necklace put you in orbit? Uh, it is as absurd as it sounds for a Superman outfit. Though it turns out that this wasn't Wonder Woman at all and that uh, she had imprisoned the real Diana Prince and wanted to marry Superman for her own ends. So at least we can't ascribe that particular crime against fashion to... Diana Prince. Diana, by the way, does actually do a redesign of Supergirl's costume, declaring that Supergirl can't go out on her adventure dressed as she was. The redesign of the costume is really just 1960s. Her neck is covered, her cape is bulkier, and instead of a two-piece outfit with a blue top and a skirt, her outfit becomes more of a dress with a string of gold-shaped beads for decoration as opposed to the gold belt on the previous costume. Uh, But it is very 60s. And this would be the last uh, recorded instance of Diana Prince playing Edna Mode for the DC Universe. She also had an appearance in Brave and the Bold, where she teamed up with Batman, though Batman was very reluctant to do so. Bruce Wayne was doing some race car driving, and one of his opponents sabotaged his car, and the doctor essentially said that uh, Bruce Wayne shouldn't race. He wasn't healthy enough to race. And Diana offered to race in his stead. However, Bruce is so macho that he decides to go as Batman, who is no less injured and unfit to race, and ultimately it falls to Diana to save uh, Bruce from his own macho-ness. In her own comic, uh, Diana battled Dr. Cyber again and ran into I Ching's estranged daughter, who actually tries to kill I Ching, and the cover would believe you to believe that she had uh, succeeded. But I Ching survives and escapes, and Diana follows uh, I Ching uh, into China, but his search for his daughter is curtailed when they have to help some people escape from China during the Cultural Revolution, which was an effort by Mao that led to tens of millions of people dying. And I'm really glad, actually, that this comic uh, covers that. Diana once again tries to visit uh, the Amazon's dimension, but is detoured to another uh, dimension, which is kind of medieval and is ruled by a wicked queen. She teams up to uh, fight alongside the warriors against the queen and to restore freedom to the land. The events happen over three issues, but it's important to note that one of these issues had a 10-page framing story that set up Diana to tell one of the warriors about her past adventures, i.e. a reprint. And that's kind of frustrating when you're only getting a Wonder Woman book every couple of months. And I should say that this story marks the start of an artistic decline for the series. This story starts at issue 190. In the prior issues, 
Diana Prince's wardrobe was made up of all of the various wild colors of the 1960s, but they came off as pretty tasteful overall. This very colorful, very fun uh, wardrobe and this whole fashion-centric portion of the story is replaced with Diana from issue 190 on wearing nothing but white. She wears white dresses, white skirts, white pantsuits, and in all but two issues, she uh, if she wears accessories, they are white accessories. So white jewelry, white shoes, it just becomes incredibly boring visually. Not only that, but it had to be a heck of a challenge for uh, washing. I mean, you're doing superhero stuff and you're wearing all white all the time. Of course, the white wasn't that detectable when you get to issue 192 because on the cover she's in a wedding dress because she just happens to be a double for the next queen of a country and that queen has been kidnapped and she's being asked to pretend to be her in order to thwart the kidnappers. This is a pretty standard story, but it's not bad, and it works in its own way. And uh, then she solves a uh, haunted house sort of mystery uh, with uh, a spooky element. Again, it's fairly well done. And then that brings us to another team-up. This time, it's with Superman in World's Finest. World's Finest had been a Batman and Superman team-up book uh, going from the 1950s. However, Batman had his own team-up title in Brave and the Bold, and the thought was, let's make World's Finest Superman's team-up book, not limit it to Batman, and he can team up with everybody. Um, This only lasted a few issues. They would restore the Superman-Batman team-ups, and towards the end of the 70s, they'd give Superman his own uh, team-up book. But in this particular issue, number 204, he teams up with uh, Wonder Woman, and uh, they end up going forward in time to a point where the world has been plunged into darkness, and they've been summoned back by a computer to prevent this from happening by saving someone in the present from being killed. And they think they have done it, but a student isn't killed. However, a young security guard who could have been who Superman saw in the future was killed, so they don't know whether they prevented the uh, destruction of the world in the future or not. Now, this story does present some time travel problems as this computer is creating a paradox because it exists in this post-apocalyptic future, and the only reason that Superman and Wonder Woman get there is because it summoned them. If there's no post-apocalyptic future, nobody summons them, and huge paradox. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there are these muggers who kind of are like part of the inciting incident, but they stay part of the story for way too long just to pad things out. However, I do like the idea that this common uh, person who we don't know about, that them being able to live really could make a big difference in the future. So I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. Uh, 
And the story definitely has a bit of a downbeat ending. It's not bad, but it does have some problems. That brings us to issue 196, uh, which was the last issue written by Mike Sikowski. After Denny O'Neill had done the first few issues, Sikowski had uh, not only canceled all the rest of them up to this point, at least the ones in Wonder Woman's own comic, he had also written them. But here it really feels like he runs out of gas. In the story Target for Today, uh, Diana comes across some information that is really critical, and I Ching tells her to get it to General Stewart, who is head of, quote-unquote, a super-secret counter-espionage organization which they don't actually bother to name, even though I Ching knows about it, which kind of says the writer couldn't be bothered to name it. Uh, and then there's a situation where an ambassador is attacked. A dog who's a seen eye dog, uh, the ambassador. However, Diana notices that the blind man is actually using his cane as a gun, and she declares that it is the old phony dog as a diversion trick. Okay, the dog is not phony, so this is really just oddly written dialogue. In this issue, General Stewart activates Diana's reserve commission as an army intelligence officer. And it has no impact on the story other than to take up time. And that also raises a question. Diana Prince was in army intelligence. Why did she need I Ching to tell her who to contact? The story does eventually end, and it's not all that interesting. It's the weakest issue in the book, and that's when issues 197 and 198 appeared as just total reprint issues, until Denny O'Neill returns for issue 199 with uh, Dick Gordano taking over the art duties. She is greeted by a man with a gun who says to her in the alleyway, alleyway, sister, quick, open your yap to scream and you're dead. And she tells him that she won't scream, but then proceeds to uh, disarm him and beat him uh, about the head and shoulders. But he tells her to stop and that he's actually there about an employment opportunity, because that is how you approach people about employment opportunities. Uh, apparently, she was he was testing her. And uh, as he ended up with several abrasions, apparently she passed the test. The private eye takes her to his boss, who is kind of like a Hugh Hefner-type figure who was the publisher of Playboy magazine. And on seeing Wonder Woman, he says, you're not bad in the looks department, but I've seen better. So yeah, that happens even to Wonder Woman, I guess. However, she's not there for her looks. He wants her to protect him. Wonder Woman refuses on the basis of principle, but changes her mind when uh, she's told that she'll be paid enough to get Aching surgery to repair his sight. This despite the fact that there's been no indication that Aching's eyes can be corrected by surgery, nor has he expressed any desire for such a surgery, nor after this uh, story 
did he get surgery? Eventually, uh, it turns out that uh, the uh, pornographer is being hunted down by an organization that is actually anti-beauty and is capturing beautiful women and throwing them in a dungeon. In the midst of these squalid conditions, Diana decides to sit on the floor in the lotus uh, position, concluding, and I'm not making this up, that she can go days without either food or water by doing yoga. However, it turns out that a disfigured Dr. Cyber is actually behind this whole thing, and uh, eventually this leads to a fight, and Wonder Woman has to take action. Then in the next story, Diana goes to visit the private detective she met in the previous one. I Ching asks if she was impressed with this private uh, detective named Johnny. Uh, not exact, not impressed exactly. He's sort of a loser. Well, I give uh, Diana credit for being honest. However, Diana arrives and finds out that Johnny has been kidnapped. And she gets a note that she has to uh, obtain a jewel known the Fist of the Flame if she ever wants to see Johnny alive again. And so she sets out to do that. But she has to travel overseas and needs money. And in order to get that, she sells her shop. Now, the first time that uh, I read that, I was kind of dubious because it seems to me that that's a little bit much for airfare. However, in the uh, first issue where she, she had lost her powers, she it was stated she was renting the shop. So all she was uh, actually selling uh, were the clothes and uh, some of the uh, materials, inventory, and some other things, and not the building itself. So that may not have brought uh, much more money. I'm still a little dubious because a couple issues later, they have her living in a tenement. But she goes overseas, and she finds that there are others who are competing for uh, the this jewel, including Catwoman and some other thieves, and they end up having to team up against a common foe, and there's a reappearance of Aching's daughter, as well as some interdimensional shenanigans. Uh, this was actually probably the last really, really good story in the book. I liked it a lot. It had a lot of fun compressed into about 40-some pages, in issue number 203, we get the women's lib issue. And it's actually called that on the cover. A young woman who Wonder Woman had befriended had gotten into a pretty militant women's lib group that was upset at a store where Wonder Woman was getting an endorsement deal because of her being kind of flat broke. And Kathy objects, and Diana calls Kathy a fanatic... She says she's for equal wages, but that she's not a joiner. I wouldn't fit with your group, and in most cases, I don't even like women. Which leads Kathy to say, well, what do you think you are? What you're saying is you don't like yourself. That wasn't actually at all what she was saying. But at any rate, it turns out that this department store is actually not just not paying equal pay, but they're also violating minimum wage laws with the women employees. And so uh, Wonder Woman exposes them and finds out that all the men doing horrible things to the women don't think they're doing anything wrong. 
And so they've managed to close down this store. And as Diana is meeting with the women's group, and they're celebrating the closure of the store, Diana is congratulating herself and saying, now I really feel I've really accomplished something for women's image. However, from behind her, a woman comes in, along with a lot of other women behind her, and says, we accuse your women's liberation group of putting 250 women out of work who would have had jobs at Grandy's department store. And Diana wonders what they're going to say and how they're going to address it because these women look really mad. And we're promised that we'll find out what happens next issue. And certainly that would be a great uh, philosophical premise. A question of how uh, regulations work and affect people. And can some wage regulations, in fact, make it so people get less money and have less opportunity to gain relevant experience? Uh, Can these actually hurt the poor rather than helping them? Or is it important to uh, enforce the law in hopes that that will increase wages? Such a great philosophical question with the answers promised in the next issue, which did not actually address them, totally dropped the ball, uh, as we get to the final issue of The New Wonder Woman, uh, which essentially has a random sniper appear and start shooting. The random sniper kills Ai Ching, uh, one... Their woman fights him. They both fall off a building. The uh, sniper falls to his death, but Wonder Woman lands on her head on a metal surface halfway down, but miraculously survives. However, after a touching farewell with Ai Ching when he had been shot and killed, uh, Diana doesn't remember who he was or who she is. She's in am- has amnesia in the hospital and uh, doesn't remember who she is. So she does what amnesia patients typically do and runs to a military base and steals a fighter jet. She doesn't answer the hails of the military pilots and so she is shot down over the ocean but rescued by the Amazons. The Amazons restore her memory, and there's a stranger who shows up who is dressed as Wonder Woman, and they fight to a draw, and it's revealed that this person is Nubia, and she's from another island, and the whole story on her may be revealed in another issue, but that's not in this particular book. And Diana returns to uh, the... uh, America and gets a job at the United Nations where she's considered a plain Jane because she's wearing green and has glasses on. As the way it works in this universe is wearing a white jumpsuit, stunning beauty, wearing a green sweater, and a pair of glasses equals plain Jane. My overall thoughts on this book and this entire run, well, first of all, I think the idea that Diana was debilitated is just kind of absurd. I mean, she led armies, she she fought all sorts of baddies, she knocked people out. It was a really cool run. She's a very active, strong heroine uh, throughout this. 
And I think the run is actually really good till you get up to issue 196. And even then, there are a few stories that I liked after that. It's worth noting that this whole uh, Diana Prince Wonder Woman uh, book uh, came out in uh, 1968 at a time when DC was struggling and falling behind uh, Marvel. The House of Ideas had really upped the game for emotional engagement with uh, their heroes. And uh, DC tried a lot of things to try and right the ship and compete and to become more relevant to uh, people in the modern age. And you saw that not only in this book, but you also had things like the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow team up, as well as changes to Batman with Batman moving into the city and the stories becoming a little more dark and less campier. Uh, and I would say probably the one that really worked out of those was the changes to Batman. And even though Batman stories became a bit darker, they didn't become grim dark like it was the 1990s. Uh, but this one, it works for its era, which kind of runs a bit uh, short. As for the role that Gloria Steinem played and Miss Magazine, it's not non-existent, but it's probably a bit overstated. New Wonder Woman had been a thing since 1968. The Wonder Woman for President issue didn't run till 1972. Essentially, the New Wonder Woman series was kind of in decline by the time that Steinem uh, made the issue and uh, really started focusing on the old uh, Wonder Woman stories. And DC was willing to go ahead and go back to the old uh, Wonder Woman and probably made sense from a, a PR perspective, though they may have gone back that way anyway, just uh, because when you're out of ideas for a new direction, it can just make sense to go back to the old direction. And comics don't usually need a pressure campaign for that. Overall, I'll give this book a rating of somewhat classy. While the early issues were better, it did work for the most part, and I think that these issues have been somewhat unfairly uh, maligned. Now we move on to West Coast Avengers Assemble. And this book collects the uh, uh, four-issue miniseries that launched the West Coast Avengers. In addition to that, there's Iron Man Annual Number 7, and uh, a lot of supplementary uh, material from Avengers and West Coast Avengers comics. The miniseries opens with Hawkeye standing by pool and screaming, Avengers Assemble! Hawkeye, at this point, is married to Mockingbird, who I ask, I guess, in a somewhat mocking way, what that was supposed to do. And uh, he has essentially been charged with starting a West Coast version of the Avengers. And I think as an idea that that's actually a pretty solid one. Because the idea that you have all of these superheroes on the East Coast in New York City and nothing anywhere else is just a bit silly. I like how eager Hawkeye is in this book. Uh, if you read the original Avengers, uh, the second group of Avengers included Hawkeye and Quicksilver, who were both really arrogant young uh, pains who constantly clashed with Captain America, questioned his judgment, 
and had humongous egos. In addition to Hawkeye and Mockingbird, the initial West Coast Avengers lineup would include Wonder Man, who was working out in Hollywood as a stuntman, and also Tigra and Iron Man. Hawkeye thought he was getting one of the original Avengers in Iron Man, but actually... Uh, this was a, at a point after uh, Tony had really hit rock bottom in alcoholism when he had given the mantle of Iron Man to Jim Rowe. Although Hawkeye can't seem to tell this, so it's possible that the Iron Man suit produces a voice that uh, sounds the same regardless of who's wearing that, even though that's not how it's been portrayed in any media or that uh, Hawkeye doesn't bother to look at the eyes, which are obviously different. Tigra had actually washed out of the Avengers on the East Coast, and she has a cat-like appearance and kind of has that same sort of agility. Hawkeye is so eager that he assumes a yes from everyone uh, he's called, even though the only alert he sent advises them that they're needed without explaining what for, and Tigra is uh, really resistant at first, pointing out that she's not signed off. But before they can discuss that further, there's an intruder alert, and that means it's time for a fight. Now, it was kind of odd for, I thought, right away for there to be an intruder alert, since the team hadn't even uh, started to fight crime, and so nobody would know that it was... Uh, uh, West Coast Avengers headquarters. Uh, and so there is a big fight and battle against the uh, intruder until Tigra identifies the intruder as uh, Shroud, who is actually an ally of Jessica Drew, who has become a private investigator and stopped being Spider-Woman at this point. And Jessica had just been worried because Tigra had left. And so exciting issue one is resolved. In issue two, we meet Blank, who uh, essentially has a uh, device that masks his overall appearance and uh, also uh, protects him with the force field. And he got the device through the power of dumb luck. During the time that Stark's company had been taken over by Obadiah Stane, a scientist had quit and was taking his invention with him which he planned to patent and use for his own benefit. Our villain knew about this device and its potential, or at least some of what it was for, because our scientist was talking to himself and speaking aloud about his plans to do something highly illegal and unethical by stealing uh, Stark uh, property that he had developed while employed for them, and selling it for his own benefit. And the scientist is so busy doing this helpful narrating that he's hit by a car, and the villain steals the uh, device and figures out how it works and turns himself into the blank. Wonder Man is unable to stop him. However, all of the Avengers team up, and they give chase, but uh, the blank manages to escape by taking a page from Rambo and blowing up a gas station. He then decides to call it good and go somewhere where he doesn't have to deal with the Avengers trying to hunt him down. 
However, every time he was charging his device, he was actually powering another supervillain called Graviton and pulling him back from the void which Thor had sent him to. And Graviton pledges to help uh, Blank go ahead and deal with and defeat the Avengers. In the next issue, Graviton does indeed become active. And he's a good villain. His powers aren't exactly the same as Magneto, and I don't think on the same level, but in many ways they're quite reminiscent, so that makes him a big challenge. Wonder Man and Tigra end up fighting him, while the rest of the Avengers are back at the mansion having a barbecue. However, Tiger returns and gets the Avengers to actually go out and fight crime, and they come up with a pretty clever plan to defeat Graviton, and I actually enjoyed this final issue, which of course ended with Hawkeye grilling uh, meat again. This one was, this whole miniseries, I think, was okay, uh, but it did have some big problems. For one thing, there's no villain in the first issue, and we don't really meet the big bad until the end of issue two, and he doesn't become active until issue three. It's a really strange way to approach a limited series. In addition, the characters were not all that great in this one. Now, the story was written by Roger Stern, who also wrote uh, Avengers Infinity, which I gave a somewhat classy review to. This one is a little bit less, and I will give it a not classy, on at least this part of it, because none of these characters uh, you actually connect with. Probably the main struggles was whether they wanted to be on the team or not. However, you had three characters who had that same sort of issue. Tigra, as we mentioned, had failed before. Uh, Jim Rhodes as Iron Man was nervous about, about people rejecting him when they found out he wasn't the original Iron Man. And Hawkeye kind of returns to form and uh, does put him down a, a little bit in the fourth issue before he... Uh, recovers and gets back to being the type of leader he wants to be. I think this would have been better if you'd had one consistent uh, person who'd been kind of the centerpiece um, of connecting with them, and then in later stories you could connect with other characters. Trying to focus on everybody and giving them similar problems I don't think works particularly well. The rest of the book includes Iron Man Annual Number 7, uh, which you may wonder what that has to do with the Avengers. Uh, well, Jim is busy being Iron Man, but he's also beginning to push back on Tony, who's gotten better uh, over uh, some of his alcoholism issues, and Jim is nervous that he'll... Uh, try and reclaim the suit. And you see the start of some of that instability, which ultimately did lead Tony to take back the suit. As this technology does seem to mess with people's heads if they're wearing it for a long time. However, the focus is on a failed uh, Marvel villain. Kind of like a stilt man, but with a more varied career. He had been created originally as a uh, copy of Wonder Man. 
and had gone by the name Power Man until he and Luke Cage fought and Luke Cage won the right to be called Power Man because he's Luke Cage. I mean, what do you expect? He took on the identity of the Prowler and got beat by Spider-Man. And so he goes to a scientist to get yet another supervillain identity. And so he becomes the new Goliath, which had been an identity that both Hank Pym and Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye, had had before. Iron Man initially fights uh, the new Goliath and is defeated. And he goes back to the West Coast Avengers headquarters, where Hawkeye and Wonder Man agree to team up with him in order to take down this villain because he was created as a duplicate of Wonder Man uh, in the Power Man form. And also Hawkeye had held the identity of Goliath before. It's an interesting setup in terms of the villain, but the rest of the story is just kind of uh, meh. Then we get to regular Avengers number 250, which is a team-up between the Avengers on the East Coast and the West Coast Avengers. And essentially, the world is in a bad spot, as a scientist has noticed that Earth's rotation is slowing down. And the scientist uh, explains to uh, Captain Marvel, uh, a.k.a. in this case, Monica Rambeau, about the potential consequences if that continues. Uh, Mountain ranges would turn into volcanoes, tidal waves will destroy cities, and eventually the Earth will stop spinning altogether, and half the Earth will burn, and half the Earth will freeze. And so it's decided that uh, because there's an external force that is slowing down the Earth's rotation, that this is kind of a big enough emergency for the East Coast and West Coast Avengers to come together. So the West Coast Avengers fly out to uh, join the uh, East Coast Avengers. And there are some hilarious thought bubbles in this, given the stakes. Wonder Man is kind of hoping that he doesn't wash out in this battle against this villain. While Hawkeye is concerned that his team isn't looked at as second stringers and that they be viewed as full-fledged Avengers. Well, given that you're dealing with the potential extinction of all life on Earth, uh, this kind of seems like a bit of a petty concern. And of course, the West Coast Avengers are actually just the guest stars as they both contribute to the fight, but the character-based stuff both centers around characters from the main uh, New York Avengers team. Then we get several uh, little bits of uh, backstory on, uh, like, snippets from various issues that led up to the formation of the West Coast Avengers. It's two pages here, three pages there, four pages somewhere else. Probably the most interesting part is from a later West Coast Avengers uh, issue that looks back on how they managed to get the mansion that they did for the West Coast Avengers, and it involved a Hollywood starlet, and it wasn't a bad uh, little story. Overall, this is far from the worst book that I've read, and I enjoyed some parts of it, but I still think it was lacking a little something. I'm willing to revisit the West Coast Avengers again, but as a whole, I'll give the book a rating of not classy. 
And to reiterate, we're giving Wonder Woman, uh, Diana Prince, celebrating the 60s omnibus, a rating of somewhat classy. Despite its problems, it's fun and a bit underrated, and it's definitely worth a read. All right, well, that will do it for now. If you do have a comment, email it to me, ClassyComicsGuy at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ClassyComicsGuy. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.